Friends, it's a joy to be house of the Lord with you uh, this, this Lord's Day on this Sunday. Uh, first Sunday of February, glad that you're here with us. We are, as a congregation, uh, launching into a, uh, a spring sermon series. We're gonna be looking at the book of Matthew together. We have finished, last year we did Genesis and then jumped into Revelation. Uh, and those are two uh, kind of heavy books. And so we want to, one, just make my job easier, but two, uh, all of us come up for air a little bit uh, and really look and, and see the life of Jesus and study that and remember uh, how he has gathered us and why he has gathered us. Uh, we look at Matthew because uh, Matthew is, is really the most uh, Jewish of all the Old Testament books. Uh, he's writing for, um, intentionally writing to a Hebrew audience. Uh, theologian and pastor Chad Bird said that Matthew is the Old Testament with wings. It has numerous callbacks uh, to the Old Testament, Old Testament stories that are being told uh, through the life of Jesus. And Matthew, the tax collector, intends uh, for his Jewish audience to know uh, not just who Jesus is, but that Jesus is the fulfillment uh, of everything they had been looking for. Uh, they, uh, they wanted the new king to come in from the line of David. They wanted uh, that Messiah, that promised one to establish that kingdom. Uh, and Matthew is the one who starts his book by saying, here he is, the king that we've waited for, the Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one from ages past is now here and he's dwelling among us. And if that's true, then how do we interact with him? How does he interact with us? Uh, how is he the Lord of all? How is he the king? What kind of kingdom is he building? Uh, so those are all things that we want to launch into together uh, this semester to look at uh, what Jesus does and says through the pen of Matthew um, because Matthew wants us to know that Jesus uh, is unlike any king that has ever existed. He was unlike any king that came before him. He's unlike any king uh, who has come since. Uh, and that he is establishing something uh, that you're gonna hear us say a lot is an upside down kingdom to what the world might value. Uh, but we know that this kingdom that he's establishing is the only one that's eternal. Uh, and it's the one that will inherit the earth. And so as, as citizens of that, as followers of Jesus, how do we engage with what he's up to? And so Matthew, he starts out his book with this genealogy. Um, it is really uh, from the first mention, and the first name mentioned is Abraham. Um, the last name mentioned obviously is Jesus. Uh, Matthew is wanting to draw this bridge uh, from how we get to Jesus all the way from the person of Abraham. It's, uh, it's his resume, it's his pedigree, uh, it serves both as his family tree uh, and also why he's qualified for the job. And so that's what we're gonna look at together uh, as we launch into the book of Matthew um, for the next several weeks together. So I'm gonna read Matthew chapter one. We're gonna be in verse one all the way through verse 17. Uh, keeping in mind that these are the very words of God as we read them. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's holy word from Matthew chapter one, verses one through 17. This is the word of the Lord. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nation, and Nation the father of Salmon. And Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David, who is the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah. Abijah was the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, 
Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah was the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah. Josiah was the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after that deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azer, and Azer the father of Zadok. Zadok was the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, who was the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. So all generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let's pray together. Jesus, that was stressful. Um, It's only by your grace and by your mercy that you could even make sense of something like that. Uh, and so, Jesus, as we, as we long to learn uh, from you and from your word and from your spirit uh, what you might have for us, uh, Jesus, would you illuminate the preaching of the word? Would you illuminate the reading of the word? Uh, Holy Spirit, would you draw us to yourselves uh, as we look and see uh, the Jesus who loves all types of people, uh, the Jesus who uh, chose to be associated uh, with the type of people that Jesus associated with? Uh, And Lord, we are counted among them. Uh, So Jesus, would you be a friend to us uh, in this next little bit of time together? Um, We love you for what you've done. It's in your name we do pray. Amen. Uh, So two things we'll see here from uh, this genealogy. First is we see the king's resume. Secondly, we're going to see the king's relatives. So let's look back at uh, Matthew chapter 1. I'm not going to read that again. Uh, But Matthew's genealogy really is this kind of who's who of of chaotic and crazy, of saintly and sinner. Um, it's wild to think that Jesus, y'all, is the only person uh, in history who, has ever, who ever got to choose his family. If Jesus is who he says he is, if he's the creator of all, then he chose to come from this line. Um, none of us got that privilege to choose what we were born into, but Jesus did. And still, yeah, this is who he chooses uh, as his ancestors. And so um, as we were looking through genealogy and preaching through this, Matthew is wanting us to know one thing. He's wanting us a lot of things, but mainly this, that the kingdom of God is made up of peculiar and really unlikely people. And the peculiar and unlikely people are exactly the ones that Jesus came to save, that God redeems sinners. And he uses sinners to advance his kingdom throughout the earth because sinners are the only things at his disposal. And so, while this genealogy may be a weird way to start a book, for Matthew's intended audience, it wouldn't have been that weird. Uh, Genealogies would have been normal for them. Uh, There's multiple genealogies, even in Scripture itself. Uh, But this one, Matthew is wanting to lay out, hey, it's going to start with Abraham, who's the father of Israel. It's going to end with Jesus. Because the promise was made to Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12, Uh, As the father of Israel, as the father of of many, Abraham was told that he would have descendants, as many as the uh, grains of sand on the seashore, as many as the stars in the sky, and that through his descendants, this entire world, the entire cosmos would be blessed. 
So Matthew's starting with Abraham, he's ending with Jesus and saying Jesus is the, is the fulfillment of all that. The promise made to Abraham, Jesus is the blessing to all the nations. Jesus is the one who gathers all the kinds of people. So Abraham's, the promise made to Abraham that he would have many sons and that he'd have many descendants, it's coming true in Jesus. So Matthew wants us to see that Abraham is in here. He then wants us to see that David is in here. Uh, David is, uh, he's the king of Israel. Uh, whenever the Jews would have thought of David, they would have thought of Israel in its heyday. David was the Michael Jordan. He was the Tom Brady. He was the Taylor Swift. He was the $1.50 Costco hot dog. He was the greatest thing that's happened. He killed Goliath. He led Israel. He led them well. Um, Israel experienced, they thrived under David. Um, he was their greatest king. And here comes Jesus who is the true and the better David, is the one who was promised, because there was a promise made to David, much in the way a promise was made to Abraham. The promise made to David was that someone from your family will always sit on the throne of Israel. And that Jesus is actually gonna be the forever king. That's gonna come from your line, David. There's gonna come this Messiah who's gonna redeem the whole world and he's gonna rule and reign even better than you did. And so Matthew wants us to see, we got Abraham, we got David, and of course, we have Jesus there at the end, um, that this would, that Matthew beautifully and strategically arranges this genealogy in a way that would, be, would have been easy for folks to memorize. It would have been easy uh, to teach, easy to trace Christ's kingly birthright all the way back to the fountainhead of Israel, which is Abraham. So this was his family tree, but it's also his resume. It's... Uh, it's what proves that Jesus can have the job that Jesus wants. Um, being a king came by blood, by birthright. Um, and so this is Matthew laying out that Jesus is a direct descendant of David. And he's going to, like, he has a rightful claim to the throne of Israel. Which raises a couple questions because we wouldn't do resumes this way. I'm guessing all of you, you've either had a job or you're about to have a job. Um, whenever you put your resume out there, you probably didn't put all your flaws on there. You probably didn't put all your warts on there. You said lie, you, you lied and said things like you're proficient in Word and you know how to use Slack. Like you used all these ways to kind of puff yourself up to say like, this is why you should hire me. I went to Ole Miss and I was in a frat and I like know this person. Like it all goes by reputation and it all goes by merit. Except for when Christ, if this is his resume, there are certainly some good kings in here. Josiah was a great king. And then there's some pretty messed up folks in here. And so none of us would have put this forward as a like, hey, I was in the chess club. Like, that's why you should hire me. But Jesus put this forward. He's saying, these are all the warts. These are all the kind of crooked sticks in my family tree. And I want you to know they're there because that's, that's the kind of king he longs to be. He wouldn't have included all these sketchy characters in there if that wasn't who he came to rule. If that wasn't the kind of kingdom that he was trying to build. So the kind of king that he wanted to be, as we look at the genealogy of Jesus, he's showing that this is my resume this is why I should get the job. And also, you're gonna to wanna to hire me because look at what I've done throughout history. Look at what I've orchestrated. And I've chosen to, 
to be with and to identify with this type of person. Kind of all types of people are represented here. So first it's his resume. Second, we're gonna look at the king's relatives. So not only does this serve as his qualifications for king, as I said before, it's also his bloodline. And so um, if this is his family, y'all, his family is crazy. And Matthew airs all of it. He throws it all out there. He holds nothing back. He's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is saying, Matthew, write this stuff down. Let them know just exactly where Jesus came from because that's who he's come to save. And so what Christ's family story tells us is Jesus is, he's the savior of all types of people. He didn't just come to save folks who kind of look like us or kind of act like us. There were no perfect people to find. There was no one like Jesus. So Jesus had to, to condescend. He had to step down. And as he's, as he's giving us his genealogy here in scripture, he's actually preaching us a sermon. Because what he's saying is, I'm about to tell you the kind of people that I'm after. I'm, trying to, I'm gonna show you the kind of kingdom that I'm building. Now, obviously for the second time, we don't have, uh, we don't have the, the luxury to go through each one of these. Uh, but we're gonna pull a few of them out. So let's start with Jacob. If we look back at verse two, Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob is one of the patriarchs of the faith. He's the grandson of Abraham. He's the son of Isaac and Rebekah. He had 12 sons, one of whom was Joseph, who's the guy who had the coat of many colors. Uh, But here's the thing about Jacob. Jacob would step on your throat to get ahead. Jacob, Jacob looked out for number one. There were two people that loved Jacob. It was Jesus and it was Jacob. (laughs) Jacob was all about himself. He was all about his success. In fact, his name in Hebrew is eerily similar to the Hebrew word for liar. Uh, Jacob was a deceiver. He was such a liar and such a deceiver, in fact, that it was his name. Jacob was always looking out for number one. It was all about what he could get. Even in the birth story of Jacob, it's said that in the womb, he's gra- he had a twin brother named Esau. In the womb, he's grabbing at Esau's heel to try to get out of the womb first. His whole life is competition. Jacob, he was a finance bro. Everything was about getting ahead. He wanted to do whatever it would take and he didn't care who he stepped on to get there. He deceived and he cheated his own brother out of his birthright. His brother Esau was hungry. He was like super hungry. He wanted a bowl of soup. Jacob's like, oh, I just happen to have a bowl of soup and I'm happy to give it to you if you give me your birthright. And Esau, who was so hungry, was like, sure, yeah, just give me that soup. And so he, he, even de- he deceived his own brother out of his inheritance. And then he, he hatched this plan with his mom to trick his blind dad into giving him the blessing and giving him the inheritance officially. Y'all, this story's crazy. Esau... Esau was hairy. That's how they describe him in scripture. He was hairy. He was so hairy, in fact, that Jacob, when he's hatching this plan with his mom, his mom says, hey, go and skin a goat and put the goat's fur on your arms and then go to your blind dad. And when you say, hey, I'm your son Esau, because you kind of sound alike, your blind dad's gonna rub your arms and he's gonna feel that goat fur and he'd be like, oh, you are Esau. That's how hairy he was. 
And so Jacob does this. He hatches this plan. He puts goat skin on him and he goes into his blind dad because he can't see. And he's like, hey, I'm your son Esau. I sure would like that blessing. And he gives him the blessing and he steals it from his brother. And then he goes off. Uh, he works for this dude Laban so he could marry his daughter uh, Rachel, who was, uh, or yeah, Rachel, who was like, like so attractive as she's described in scripture. And Laban tricks Jacob and gives him Leah, who's the not attractive sister. And he's like, hey, I'm just gonna give you Leah instead. And Jacob gets mad and works another seven years because he wants to marry Rachel. He's given a wife and he says, this isn't good enough, I want that one. Jacob took what he wanted. He didn't care who he hurt in the process and it worked for him until it didn't work for him anymore. His life was a train wreck. His sons murdered about a billion people after they assaulted one of his daughters. His sons sold their brother into slavery in Egypt. He was constantly on the run. His drive and his quest for success and proving himself left him empty and wanting. So much so that one night as he falls asleep, he gets in this wrestling match with God, which is another crazy story in the Old Testament. It's the story of Jacob's ladder. You've probably heard that. And so there's this story where he falls asleep and he's wrestling God in the middle of the night and he won't let him go. And the sun's about to come up and God's like, hey, you gotta let me go. And Jacob's like, I'm not doing that. I'm not letting you go until you bless me. I'm not letting go of you until you bless me. But Jacob had already had a blessing. What Jacob had realized is that the blessing he needed was from God himself. Everything he had done it wasn't gonna get him anywhere. Everything he had done and left him empty. So God says, sure, I'll give you the blessing, but I'm gonna break your hip, which is another crazy part of the story. And so he touches Jacob's hip and he breaks it. And for the rest of Jacob's life, he walks around with a limp as a physical reminder of the pain that he has gone through just to find out who he was. When God blessed him, he gave him a new name. He gave him the name Israel. God told him your name's not liar anymore. Your name is now Israel. Your name is now the one I love but he walks around with this limp for the rest of his life. The success junkie has burned himself out. And when the success junkie burns himself out and they get to the end of their rope, that's where they find out that that's where God hangs out. That's where the spirit hovers. The spirit hovers at the end of yourself because you gotta get to that point. God's never gonna make sense to you. Christianity's never gonna make sense to you until you get to that point. As Keller, as Keller said, you never realize that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Jacob was distraught. His hip hurt now. And he was chasing a blessing. And he just wanted someone to look at him and say, you're enough. You don't have to go through all this anymore, Jacob. And Matthew, as he's writing, he puts Jacob right at the beginning of this thing because that's who Jesus came after. Jesus goes after scoundrels. Jesus goes after finance bros. Jesus goes after those who are chasing success and know that they're not gonna find it. And you're gonna go through a lot of pain. And Jesus is gonna say, I'm here for you. That's who I'm coming after. That's the kind of kingdom that he's building. So we have Jacob, another figure that we have is Rahab. Uh, Matthew is already breaking rules here because you don't put women in your genealogy. This would have been weird for them. They couldn't own property, right? They couldn't vote, they didn't have any rights. They were second class citizens. And so if you're trying to make a case for why you need, you need the job, if you're trying to make the case 
for being the king, you wouldn't have put a woman in your genealogy. It, would have, it, would have, it wouldn't have made sense. It wouldn't have gotten you anywhere. So if Matthew's putting her in there, then there's a reason that she's put in there. And let's just say you were, you were daring enough to do that. Let's say you were daring enough at this time to break those rules. You wouldn't have put Rahab in there. Because Rahab was a sex worker. Rahab was a prostitute. Sex was her business, and business was good. She lived in Canaan, which was the darkest nation on earth at the time. And she lived in Jericho, which is the darkest city and the darkest nation at that time. And you already know this. You already know this. You can outrun a lot of things, but you can't outrun a bad reputation. And that's what Rahab, that's, that's who Rahab was. She would have had a reputation around town. They would have known her as the prostitute. They would have known her as the sex worker. They would have known her. They would have known who she was. And when she helped the Israelite spies escape Jericho, it wasn't because she understood the mission that they were on. It wasn't because she was like, oh, I love that God you're talking about and I wanna be a part of that. She was doing it so she could spare her own life. She knew that when the Jews came in, they were gonna kill everybody. She wanted to be spared. See, Rahab was the type of person that sadly, rarely, if ever, would darken the doors of a church. And Jesus said, that's who I'm after. That's who I'm going for. Because I'm the God who can restore reputations. Not by making you good, but by making you mine. He's the God who can come in because we're all walking around and your pastor is chief among you that there are things in your past that you can't get over. And there are things in your past that follow you around. And there's a cloud of grief and a cloud of sadness and a cloud of shame that hangs over your head. And if anybody in this room knew about it, you would be mortified. It follows you around, the reputation haunts you. And Jesus says, that's who I'm after. That's who I want. Because I can take that and I can redeem it. I can take that and I can use it for good. And Jesus is saying through the pen of Matthew, I'm coming for you. That's who will be the pillar of my kingdom and my kingdom will be full of people like Rahab. My kingdom will be full of redemption stories. Look, I don't know what your sexual history is. I don't need to know it. All I know is that Jesus does. And I don't tell you that to scare you. I tell you that to comfort you. Because Jesus is saying, throw it all at my feet. He knows it anyway. Throw it all at my feet. Turn it over to me. That thing in your past, it doesn't define you. Whether you walked into it willingly or unwillingly, it doesn't define you. Jesus is saying, bring it to me. See that this is the kingdom that I am building. Rahab thrives because of God's goodness to her. If you know the story of Boaz in the book of Ruth, um, Boaz might be the best person in the Bible. I don't know. Jesus probably. Second, Boaz. Um, Rahab was his mom. And so Boaz marries this lady named Ruth, who we'll talk about now. Because Matthew mentions another woman here. He actually mentions several women in this. But he mentions Ruth, who is the daughter-in-law of Rahab. And she was an outsider. She was a Moabite. She was a foreigner. She wasn't an Israelite. She wasn't a Jew. Uh, she was single and she was penniless. 
Um, she would have been a drain on society. She would have been on food stamps. She, she didn't have much of a family and she ends up in Israel because a famine comes to Moab and there's nothing to eat. So she goes with her family, this lady named Naomi, who changes her name to Mara because she says, my name is now bitter. Like she'd, have been, uh, she'd have been a good time at parties. So Ruth travels with her to this new nation of Israel because Moab has run out of food. So she lives in this food desert. She's a refugee. She's lonely. Y'all, she's lonely. And you can't swing a stick in this room without hitting somebody who's lonely. Pastor Brian Sorgerfrau, speaking of this passage, told the story of Robin Williams, the comedian, uh, Robin Williams, who died tragically by suicide. He said this, I used to think there was nothing worse in the world than being alone. Then I discovered that there is something worse. It's being surrounded by hundreds, if not thousands of people and still dealing with a crippling feeling that I'm alone. Ruth was a foreigner. She was an outsider. She would have been flooding into Israel. She'd have been flooding into Bethlehem, which in Hebrew means house of bread. And so she's hungry. She's looking for bread. Everybody goes to Bethlehem. Everybody would have been coming into Bethlehem because that's where the bread is. That's where the food is. And so the Israelites would have been suspect of her. She's just coming in to take her food. She doesn't want to get a job. She just wants to come in here, get all her food. The scarcity mindset ruled then just like it does now. And while y'all, y'all probably have enough food, I'm guessing, you know exactly what it's like to be lonely. It's the emotion, it's the feeling, it's the whatever you want to call it that I hate the most. It's the one that I run from the most because it tells me that there's something wrong with me Like you're lonely because there's something wrong with you. I don't have time to tell you why that's wrong, but I just know that you probably feel that. And Jesus is saying, that's who I'm here for. That's who my kingdom is for. I'm building a kingdom that's gonna eradicate loneliness. It might be the biggest pandemic in this world. And Jesus is saying, I'm a friend to those who are lonely and I've built a family and that family is my church, that family is my kingdom that will be a home to all those who are lonely. The psalmist says that that God sets the lonely in families. So he places you in the church family. He's gonna place you in small groups. And he's gonna place you with himself. Because here's the thing about Jesus. Jesus knows what loneliness is. Jesus knows exactly what that feels like. Jesus knows Ruth because Jesus is Ruth. Jesus was poor. Jesus was penniless. Jesus didn't have a home. He left heaven where he had it all to come and live with a people who didn't really know him and didn't really like him. He knows what it's like to be lonely. When he goes at his darkest hour to pray in the garden and he's praying so hard that he's sweating drops of blood and he's with his buddies and he just wants his buddies to stay awake while he prays and they fall asleep, Jesus knows what it's like to be alone and to be lonely. And he's saying for for eternity, you have a home and a friend in me that Jesus saves the suspect. Just like he saves the scoundrel like Jacob and the sketchy like Rahab, he's gonna save the suspect like Ruth. Ruth gets married to Boaz, told you about him. You should read the book of Ruth, it'll take you about 20 minutes. Um, Boaz is the son of Rahab, the prostitute. She gives birth to Obed, who's the granddad of David, who's Israel's greatest king. Ruth was David's great-grandmother. And so we're gonna get to David who Matthew is trying to make really like the hinge of this whole thing. 
to get us to Jesus. So lastly, we have David himself who, y'all, David was the poster child. He was the golden boy. He was the musician. He was the fighter. He was the king. He was the pretty boy. He was the psalmist. He wrote so much of the Bible. He wrote Psalm 23 that's been read at every funeral that's ever taken place. He led Israel and he led it well. David, in our terms, if David walked among us now, uh, David would have been a super Christian. He'd have his Bible all over his Instagram. He'd play guitar at the youth retreat. He'd go to Christian college and be the president or whatever happens at Christian colleges. He would have run the place. He'd have a Brandon Lake playlist. He'd have a Phil Wickham playlist. His favorite show would have been The Chosen. He was the golden boy. He was the poster child. He was it. He was all of Israel's hopes wrapped up in himself. So Israel would have been like, oh, sure, it makes sense that David's in there. Look how great he was. Look at all the great stuff he did. Look at who he was. But Jesus is saying, that's not the David I'm after. This is what Matthew says. The father of David. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. He points out David's greatest shame. Great, David's greatest failure. Jesus, through the pen of Matthew and the Holy Spirit's inspiration, is pointing out, yeah, David, poster boy, super Christian, Brandon Lake fan, you slept with another man's wife and you had a baby with her. And not only was it another man's wife, it was your best friend, Uriah. It was your best friend and your greatest soldier. See, so while Uriah was out fighting the battle for Israel, where David should have been, David was at home bored, walking around on his rooftop, and he sees Uriah's wife taking a bath, and he's like, Bathsheba, that's how you remember that. And he sees her taking a bath, and he's like, hey, I want her. And so he abuses his power to coerce another man's wife, not just another man's wife, his best friend's wife, into sleeping with him, and then he gets her pregnant, and now David's in trouble. And instead of repenting right away, instead of going and coming clean, he says this, I'll just pull Uriah off the battlefield, I'll get him liquored up, and then I'll send him to his house, and then he'll sleep with Bathsheba, and then he'll think the kid's his. Because David doesn't know how genetics work. And he'll think the kid's his. And Uriah's like, I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna go and enjoy time with my wife while my men are dying on the battlefield. Your men, David, I'm not gonna do that. Uriah had integrity. And so then David gets really mad. And instead of repenting, David says, that's cool, Uriah, super soldier, then just go back to fight. And David puts him on the front lines because he knows that he'll be killed. So here's super Christian, here's Brandon Lake fan David, who has slept with another man's wife when he should have been at work, sleeps with another man's wife, gets her pregnant, gets that man off the battlefield, gets him drunk, tells him to go. He doesn't do it. So then David sends him back out to get killed. David kills a man to cover up his sin instead of repenting. David, the man after God's own heart, instead of repenting, launches a scheme and that scheme just keeps failing. He looked at Jesus, he looked at God as a booster shot to kind of get him through life. 
David didn't love God for the sake of God, he loved God for the sake of himself. And while he looked and appeared to have it all together, to be this super Christian, David discovered what you already know, and you still try to do it, is that white knuckle discipline won't get you an inch in the kingdom of God. And until we realize that, Christianity is just another burden. It's just another performance. It's just another thing that you have to be good at. And Jesus is saying, I'm still for David. David knew that he couldn't charm his way out of this guilt. He couldn't fight his way out of it. He couldn't scheme his way out of it. He tried, slept with another man's wife, got that man drunk. He wouldn't do it. Sent him out, got him killed. She gives birth to the kid, the kid dies. It's a tragic story. And Jesus says this, y'all, quit scheming. Quit scheming. The secret life that you're living is gonna run you ragged. The secret life that you're living to try to cover up, to try to make up for the life that you're portraying out there. Jesus is saying, quit scheming. It's hamstringing your walk. It's handicapping your relationships. You will never know just how loved you are until you stop covering your sin with your own dirty rags and let Jesus clothe you in his righteousness. That's the only remedy. And here's the thing. Jesus loves you too much to let you go on living that way. The secret life that David had, the schemes that he was hatching, yet appearing to be the super Christian, having it all together, what he did in the dark, what he did in secret, Jesus says, that's who I'm coming after. I'm coming after the David that's trying to hide from me. Y'all, he's coming after the you that's trying to hide from him. And out of his love and his mercy to you, he's not gonna let that continue. He's gonna make your private sins public. And I don't tell you that to scare you, maybe a little bit. I tell you that to comfort you. Talk to anybody who's had this happen to them, they'll tell you it's the best thing that could happen to them. Talk to anybody who's had a public sin and have felt the forgiveness of Jesus, they walk in a freedom that we never know because we don't believe it. Jesus says you'll never know the freedom given to you in the person and the work of him if you're hiding. Jesus comes for the super Christians because that term itself is stupid. There's not one. Jesus is saying, I've come for the, the scoundrel like Jacob and the sketchy like Rahab and the suspect like Ruth and the super Christian like David, that this is the kingdom he's building. This is the kind of king that he is. Are there hypocrites in God's kingdom? Of course. Are there hypocrites in God's church? Yes, and you're one of them. This is the kind of kingdom he builds. This is the kind of people that he chooses to gather. It's a kingdom whose mission is built upon redemption and built upon changing the world and being upside down from what the world values. It's a kingdom made up of all those who are washed in the blood of Jesus, who is the son of God and the savior of sinners. Let's pray together. Jesus, I would hope that my own heart would believe what I just said. Lord, that in those moments of our deepest and our darkest shame, 
That's the you that, that's the, that's the us that you love. That's where you come after us. So Jesus, would you shine a light into those dark places? Would you expose them? Would you bring them to the surface? And as we sing together and as we come to feast on your body and your blood as a physical reminder of your sacrifice on our behalf, uh, Jesus, would you call us out of hiding? Holy Spirit, would you not let another moment go by that we don't rest on you fully? That we don't rest on Jesus fully for salvation? Jesus, call the sinners to yourself, encourage the saints, humble the proud, and raise the lowly, we pray. It's in your name we do pray. Amen.